Father, we praise you for your word. Lord, we praise you that you have loved us, that you've poured out your spirit, Lord, to us, that you have saved us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for your word, or else we would not know any of that. We thank you for your revelation to us. Lord, this truly is our most precious possession, your message to us that we can know you, that we can worship you, or that we can live as we were made to live according to your design. And so, Father, I pray that as, as I preach, that I would faithfully preach what's in your text. And Lord, as you have brought everybody here this morning to look at this passage, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and that they would rejoice to respond to your message. In Christ's name, amen. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This morning we're going to focus in on verses 43 through 45. 43 through 45. I'm going to start, though, by backing up just a little bit to verse 39, and I'm going to read all the way through the story of Jesus healing an official's son. So we're going to go ahead and do that, and then just keep in mind as we do that our focus is going to be verses 43 through 45. So beginning in John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came, had come from Judea to Galilee. All right, so John's telling the story here, and, and we're changing scenes. Last week we looked at uh, the Samaritans believing in Jesus, and so, but now we're changing scenes. We're moving from Samaria back to Cana in Galilee. And don't miss this, though. Don't miss that we're moving from Samaria back to Galilee, because that helps us to understand our verses today. Our first point here this morning I'm calling, make sure to welcome the real Jesus. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to use that to follow along. Make sure 
to welcome the real Jesus. For the Jewish Messiah, it might seem strange that near the very beginning of his ministry, he'd leave Judea and he'd go to Samaria. We hadn't really talked about that, did we, as we were talking about him going and speaking to the Samaritans. We talked about the bad relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans, but we didn't really think about the Jewish Messiah at the very beginning of his ministry deciding to leave and to go to Samaria. But John is a great storyteller. You can't ever forget that when you read the Gospel of John. He knows exactly what he's doing in these few verses between these two stories. Because what happened? Do you remember what happened in the home of those dirty, backwards-thinking Samaritans? They recognized Jesus for who He is. They believed in Him. They called Him the Savior of the world. Remember how unique that phrase is. John's the only one who uses it. He only uses it twice. And one of the times he uses it, it's actually the Samaritans who give Jesus that title. In other words, they accepted Jesus as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And they honored Him for who He is. Not for who they expected Him to be, not for what they would like him to do. No, they met a Jew and they had to come to grips with the fact that it was this Jewish man who came into Samaria who is their Messiah. And that's the point John is making when he says that Jesus comes back to Galilee for he had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Context matters so much when you're reading the Bible, doesn't it? In the other Gospels, Jesus actually says a similar thing about prophets not having honor in their hometown. But here, here, he just left the Samaritans who honored him for who he was. And he's going back to Galilee where he's not honored. But wait, you might say, because you're reading over the verses while I'm talking right now. It sure sounds like the Galileans are welcoming and accepting Jesus. It says right there, they welcomed Him. Well, let's read carefully. Why do they welcome Him? Because they saw all that He had done at the feast. They saw the drama. They saw the show. They saw the excitement. They saw what Jesus did turning over the tables making a whip. They saw all of this, and now Jesus is coming back to them. Jesus Himself is going to point this out when He talks to the official in in the next story. All you people care about are the signs and wonders. The you there, when He speaks to to the official, the you there, by the way, it's plural. It's not singular. It really should be all you people. All y'all. All y'all care about are the signs and and the wonders. He's speaking here to the crowd that's around Him. He's speaking to the very people who welcomed Him back. 
And that's the difference. We can be sure of it. Just keep reading on into chapters 5 and 6. Because unlike the Samaritans, who only needed to hear about and then meet Jesus, to know that Jesus was more than a traveling show, He was the Messiah Himself. He was the Savior of the world. Jesus' own people are going to miss that over and over and over again. They have no idea yet who it is that they're really welcoming back. That's the irony here. They're welcoming him back. But as you see, as you continue to read in John, they don't understand who it is that they're welcoming back here. They're welcoming back their idea of Jesus, the miracle worker. You know, people go to, the, go to churches for the same reason, don't we? We can. Many do. Go for the show. Go for the experience. You go to see the band, or you go to hear the funny preacher, or the angry fired up preacher, or the intellectual preacher, or the political preacher, or the non-political preacher, or the famous preacher. And in doing so, we can act just like these Jews in Galilee. They don't really care about who Jesus actually is, because that's not why they're coming. They're not coming to see Jesus for who He actually is. They're coming for the show. They're coming for who they think Jesus is. No, these three verses tell us that when Jesus comes back from Samaria, the story begins to take place fully in the shadow of the coming cross. These are the people who will mockingly call Jesus King of the Jews but not sincerely call Him the Savior of the world. Soon, within a chapter even, the Jewish leadership are going to start trying to kill Jesus. Soon, Jesus is going to start offending all these Jews, all y'all, by claiming He is the Son of the Father. So they aren't welcoming Jesus because He's the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Word, Reminds us that not all people who say, Lord, Lord, are doing it because Jesus truly is the Lord in their eyes. So let's start there this morning. Why are you welcoming Jesus? What is Jesus to you? Is he a show? Is he an experience? Perhaps Jesus belongs in this little box over here, labeled, My Spiritual Life. And Jesus can have whatever He wants in that little box over here that's labeled, My Spiritual Life. But Jesus doesn't actually enter into the rest of my life or the rest of my concerns. Jesus shouldn't be showing up in my conversations about other things. Because that's not who Jesus is to me. That's the attitude of these Jews. It's the attitude that leads to the cross itself, isn't it? It's the attitude that led to the cross right from the beginning. God made us in a certain way. He made us to obey Him in certain things. And along comes this serpent who says, Did God really say? Is that really the way it's supposed to be? 
Do you really have to accept God's way of things? And we buy into that in wonderful, wonderfully terrible ways, right? If you do not realize and accept and believe and yes, even proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world and everything in it, you may as well be a part of the crowd that crucifies Him. There's no middle ground about Jesus. That's what we're going to discover as we read through in John. There's no middle ground here. Either He is the Savior of the world, or you want to kill Him for who He is when you begin to realize He's not there to give us a show. He's not there just to back up the things that we already believe. He's not there simply to carry us through wherever we want to go. Is He? You remember when we were reading through Genesis and we talked about Enoch and walking with God. And we had the conversation about what it means to walk with God. Because so often we think of it as God walking with us. And so we're walking along together towards a goal, but when we come to intersections, the test arises. We want to go left. Well, God's walking with us, so He should go left, but that's not the way it works, is it? If you're walking with God, when you come to the intersection and God says, we go right, you go, I'm walking with God. I go right. When we come to Jesus... We have to come to Jesus, not to our version of Jesus. We we are never, ever, in our walk with the Lord, you are never, ever, ever, I'm not sure I've emphasized this enough yet, so let me throw in a few more evers here. You're never going to change who Jesus is. You know, sometimes people get married and think I can change them. And we can't even change our spouses. You will never change who Jesus is. The relationship you have with Jesus is not about you transforming Jesus to match your agenda. The the relationship we have with Jesus is not about you transforming Jesus to agree with you. What What is the relationship that we have with Jesus? He transforms us. He bought us. He changes us. Make sure, Christian, you're welcoming Jesus as He is. Now how do we do that? We, 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 we have to have the Word of God, don't we? The whole counsel of God. We, we have to consider Jesus, in every situation, we have to consider both His compassion, His unbelievable mercy, His unending patience, and His perfect justice, His absolute righteousness. We have to consider the fact that He is the Lamb who died. He is the King who will return and crush all of His enemies under His feet. We have to be challenged by Jesus. We have to recognize He is the Savior of the world. So, that's our first point. Make sure to welcome the real Jesus. 
Unlike these Galileans who simply wanted the show to come to them. Secondly, this morning, what I want to do is I want to give a case study on understanding Jesus today, a case study on welcoming Jesus today. I want to think a little more about what can happen in our day when we welcome Jesus, but we don't welcome the Jesus of the Bible and all of His righteousness and all of His holiness and all of His truth. So last week in my sermon, I mentioned Rosario Butterfield and her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosario Butterfield in the late 90s, was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian. She was uh, a leader in um, many lesbian and and, and, uh, LGBTQ movements. And she decided to write about how the conservative right interprets the Bible. And so she spent two years in the Bible trying to understand that. And as many before her who spent two years in the Bible... She met Jesus, and as many before her who were saved, she did not transform Jesus after all. Jesus transformed her. And so I mentioned her last week. This week I read an article where she responds to a woman named Jen Hatmaker. Uh, Jen Hatmaker has written a number of books in in what's called the Christian living category. I, I, I think she also might either have been or is on HGTV. Um, And she has said that that homosexual marriages should be accepted in the church. And she has even gone so far as to say that those marriages can be holy in the sight of God. And so here's the thing. as, As homosexuality has become so much more public and prevalent in our culture, and as many are pushing hard for it to become even more common and accepted, we as Christians are really struggling to keep up. We know people who feel that way. Perhaps you may even have some of those feelings, thoughts, desires, or just questions. It's possible. I'd say it's pretty likely. Someone. After all, this is something we have to remember that has been around since the time of Genesis. This is not something that just showed up in the last 20 or 30 years. Many of us know people who are publicly living that life. And here's the thing. Many of us know people who are publicly living that life who are kind. They are thoughtful. They're good neighbors. They're co-workers. They're family members. They're friends. And of course, you are going to be seen in a very negative light if you speak out against this in our culture today. So, Jen Hatmaker gives an example of someone who wants the church to find a way to accept those real feelings and desires and make them something that fits into a Christian worldview. So she says things like this. She says, I want the very best for my gay friends. I want love and happiness and faithfulness and commitment and community. Yes, that's an easy answer. Uh, The the easy answer being, would you support them in, in the church? When asked about what she would say if her children were gay, she says, We want for all of our kids the same thing, faithful, committed marriage and a beautiful family that is committed to God and the church. I would have the same standard across the board no matter what. What she means there in context is no matter whether they're in a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship. What she wants for them is a faithful, committed marriage and a beautiful family that's committed to God and the church. 
This is becoming more and more common. As the church tries to engage with compassion and not offend the world, and so she argues that we should strive for faithful, caring, God-glorifying marriages, whoever the two individuals are in those marriages. What Rosario Butterfield said in response is crucial for us to understand because it gets at this question of whether we are welcoming the Jesus who actually exists or whether we are transforming Jesus to fit what we are more comfortable with. And we have ended up ignoring who he actually is. And here's the thing. Whatever, whatever Christians say here, standing on the truth, right? We're, we're bigots. We're mean-spirited. We're cruel-hearted. And I don't say this to be mean, but because it's clear that there's this massive confusion here. That there are so many well-meaning people who are really ignoring who Jesus actually is and are putting their own understanding of right and wrong, of sin and of grace, of compassion and love onto Jesus. And what happens is it, it, it leads us to miss out on the amazing power that Jesus actually brings for all sinners. So here's what Rosario Butterfield said. She said, How amazing it would have been to have someone as radiant, knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as Jin saying out loud what my heart was shouting. Yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. My emotional vertigo could find normal once again. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after He convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Today, I hear Jen's words, words meant to encourage, not discourage, to build up, not tear down, to defend the marginalized, not broker unearned power, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely, did my lesbianism reflect who I am? which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there, it's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. You and I, we have to realize that we are meeting the Jesus who actually exists. The one of the Bible. The one who was prophesied by a holy, righteous God who came into the world in Bethlehem, who we meet on the pages of the New Testament. 
And when we meet Him on the pages of the New Testament, He confronts our sinfulness, whatever our sinfulness may be. We think of the woman at the well who says, give me the living water. And he turns and he says, hey, we have to talk about the fact that you've been married five times and the man you're living with is not your husband. We must recognize that in each of us there is a sinful heart that in some way is rebelling against God's design. In each of us there is a sinful heart that in some way is perverting God's design and twisting it and rebelling against it. And Jesus had to come. Let's not lose sight of the whole reason why Jesus had to come in the first place. He had to come for our sin. So we shouldn't be able to justify our sin. We shouldn't want to justify our sin, guys. Any of it. Whether it be an obvious, outward, public sin. Whether it be one of our acceptable sins. Whether it be a sin that nobody but you knows about. The very fact that Jesus came for our sin... One, it gives us hope in the face of our sin. And two, it leaves us no room to argue that Jesus would accept any of our sinfulness. He died for our sinfulness. He's patient with us. He's merciful to us. But He had to die for our sinfulness. And if He did not, we would pay an eternity of judgment for it. So listen to the conclusion that Rosario Butterfield makes about telling people that they can find a way to have Jesus and their sin, whatever that sin may be. She says, There is no good will between the cross and the unconverted person. The cross is ruthless. To take up your cross means that you are going to die. As A.W. Tozer has said, to carry a cross means that you are walking away and you are never coming back. The cross symbolizes what it means to die to self. We die so that we can be born again in and through Jesus by repenting of our sin. Even, she points out, the unchosen ones. And putting our faith in Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. So we aren't actually showing love and compassion, are we? by trying to make any sinner, any sinner, feel comfortable in their sin. That goes way beyond homosexuality. But without that understanding, we can't speak in love to our friends and to our neighbors and to our family members who are being carried away by the culture's lies, the devil's lies on this if we don't have an understanding of of who Jesus is and why He came and what sin has to do with that, every sin, then we are not going to be able to welcome the real Jesus. Guys, if we want to meet every Sunday and we want to welcome Jesus, we have to be humble. We have to be repentant. We have to be willing to confess our sins and put them to death. It's going to be a battle. It's, it's, a, it's going to be a fight. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We all have desires that we have to battle with. 
whatever they may be. But if we're going to welcome Jesus, we're welcoming Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't justify us being cruel. We're not just interested in being right. We're not just interested in being right because that's not what Jesus was simply interested in. He is right. He doesn't have to prove that to anybody. What did Jesus come into the world for? John just told us a couple of chapters ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The world's condemned already. Our agenda is to proclaim that God is here through Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. We can lovingly offer grace because that's what Jesus came for. But you have to make sure you're welcoming Jesus for who He is. that you are walking with Him. We cannot simply welcome a version of Jesus that we are comfortable with. And this is across the board, right? I think there are many who are uncomfortable with the patience and mercy and compassion of Jesus for sinners. Like the disciples who didn't say it out loud, but John sort of clues us in, they were thinking it. Why are you talking to that woman? Why are you engaging with her? Jesus, I almost said something really obvious, and I'm just going to say it now. Jesus is who he is, right? Deal with it. In this passage, Jesus is coming into Galilee, but they're only welcoming the novelty. They're only welcoming the novelty that is this guy who did some amazing and wild things at the feast in Jerusalem, but they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. They're going to have to really soon. And many of them are going to hate what they figure out because Jesus is not going to back away from who He is. He's going to continue making hard statements. This afternoon, read John 5 and 6 and see how He makes hard statements. He does not back away from claiming He's the Son of the Father. He doesn't back away from claiming what they have done, who their Father is. He doesn't back away They will either accept Jesus for who He actually is or they will kill Him. Guys, we will either accept Jesus for who He actually is or when He shows up and we meet Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Some will do it joyfully. Some will welcome Jesus joyfully because He's the Redeemer of their lives. He's the Savior from their sins. He's their Lord. He's the one they have allegiance to. Others will bow the knee because you have no choice because that's who Jesus is. So, to close this morning, I have a final point for us. Welcoming Jesus in the light of the cross. Welcoming Jesus in the light of the cross. I almost titled this point, Jesus Doesn't Play That Game. 
I want to think for a minute what Jesus says to the official in, in verse 48. We're going to dig into this even more next week, but it's connected to our verses today. When the man begs Jesus about his son, we see Jesus reply with something that sounds harsh to our ears. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, initially, as, as you read that, you might think, wow, that's a, you know, that's a little cold. That's, that's Jesus pointing out the motives of this individual who came to him. That his motive is not really about his son. His motive is about seeing Jesus do a sign. Or, or maybe we might say, maybe his motive is to treat Jesus you know, like the, the Coke machine. Put the money in, get the, get the can out. But we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful with that. Because, as I just said earlier, it doesn't say unless you, speaking individually to the man. It's a plural you. Unless you all. Unless you people. He's making a public statement that those who are listening to him would hear because it's for them. Perhaps for the readers also who are reading It's for them. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's condemning the crowds. He's condemning the people who are welcoming Him. They came to see Jesus for the show. They came to see the signs and the wonders. They they saw them at the feast. They want to see more of them now. This is what they expect from Him. We're going to see next week that the official is actually going to be different than this. If you read the story, he doesn't, he, he doesn't even actually respond to what Jesus says there. It's, it's, he's so, it's like he's so desperate for his child. He's so desperate for the fact that his, his boy is, is dying. That, that, that's just not what's on his mind at all. And we'll see Jesus' compassion there. But the accusation here is for Jesus' own people. The very ones that He is supposed to be their Savior. They won't believe in Him because He's the Word. That's not why they'll believe in Him. They won't believe in Him because He's the eternal Son of God. They won't believe in Him because He is clearly the Master of the Old Testament Scriptures. They they won't believe in Him because they've met Him. No. No. No, they won't believe Jesus for who He is. They'll believe Him for what they want Him to do. For what they think He is. And so Christians, we we need to face a hard truth this morning. We have the Scriptures. We have John's testimony, as well as Matthew's, Mark's, Luke's, Peter's, Paul's, James's, whoever wrote Hebrews. We can see everything that is needed to know who Jesus is. We have it. It's there. We are called to believe in Jesus because of who He is. Period. He deserves our belief. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the fact that even if Jesus had never saved us, He still deserves our belief, doesn't He? Even if Jesus had never died on the cross for us, He still deserves our worship and allegiance, doesn't He? This is the very nature of who Jesus is. 
He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. If He did nothing for us, just by the very nature of who He is, He would deserve everything from us. We don't think that way though, do we? Be challenged this morning, Christian, to think that way. This is our God. Because when you realize that He deserves this from us, no matter what we do, and then you think about the fact that He didn't demand our worship simply because of who He is, but He actually did show His love for us, Romans 5 could have read that while we were still enemies of God, we still were obligated to worship Him. But while we were still enemies of God, He showed His love for us. He reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. Welcome Jesus in light of the cross. Jesus looks at your sin, whatever it is, however heinous it might be, or however acceptable you might think it is, it's not. And offer salvation, redemption, mercy, grace because of the cross. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I've got one challenge for you understand who Jesus actually is in Scripture. Understand who Jesus actually is in Scripture. There are many people who are going to tell you Jesus is one thing or another. Anytime you ever hear anybody start a sentence with, well, to me, I've always seen Jesus this way, run away from that person. Let us strive to see Jesus in Scripture and welcome Him in light of the fact that Christians are only Christians because Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross. All of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, please help us. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to understand Your Word. I pray, Lord, those of us this morning who are Christians already, Father, that we would not, not, not fall into the mistake that these Galileans fell into. Lord, that we would forever be coming to the Word and having our understanding of Jesus directed and filled by Your Word. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Jesus this morning. Lord, at first, I I pray for those who have been lied to about who Jesus is. Lord, that they would not settle for that, but that they would come directly to your word to meet him. Lord, I pray for us that as we are ambassadors of Christ, we would put off sin. We would put on holiness because, Lord, we reflect Christ to the world. We want to give an accurate reflection of who Jesus is in our own lives by what we say, but also by how we live, Lord. Help us. We need the power of the Spirit for that. 
And Lord, remind us that this is our great goal. Our great goal is to grow into Him who is our head and to Jesus Christ. Lord, may all our other goals, whatever they may be, however big or however small, however important, however minuscule, would they all fold in under this great goal of becoming like Jesus. May we know Him better so that we can become like Him. May we behold Him, Lord, so that we may become like Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.